Bethel Church, Ober Portage. Jesus has the supremacy. It's all about him. It always has been, and by God's grace, we endeavor that it will be true of our lives here at Bethel Church for all the years to come. And what a joy it is. I love this tradition that is newer to me than many of you, that once a year, we would take the time to really focus on what is true every moment of the year, that it is all about Jesus Christ. That's been a tradition at Bethel Church for over 25 years now. This is number 26 in a long series of what I hope continues to be a culture-shaping reality for our church family. Today, we bring what's been a year-long journey, with some breaks in between, through the latter half of the book of John. We're bringing that today to a close. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. You can find that in your copy of God's Word with me right now. John 20, 30, and then we'll see verse 31 as well. You know, it's all the better that today is all about Him Sunday because really... John is going to reveal in this verse today that all of his book has been all about Jesus. It's been all so that we could believe Jesus. John says his book, his approach, his worldview is that it's all about Jesus as well. And if I were to summarize what will be the whole sermon in two phrases, two sentences, it would be this. Life is in him when we believe him. And you are invited to him. We have sufficient evidence of him, though we've only just begun to comprehend him. That's the roadmap for us today as we journey through two verses of God's word. So let's look at those this morning. And we'll come back to these phrases, these words, again and again throughout the message. God's word says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John saying, these are written, these signs that Jesus has done, this resurrection appearance he's had most recently. All of this book that I've prepared by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's all been written about Jesus. It's all about him. All so you can believe him. And we're going to, I'm going to do my best to explain that reality by working through this passage today backwards from the end of the verses back to the beginning. You ever do one of those maze puzzles on a sheet of paper? You know what I'm talking about? It's a maze, and you have to get from start point A to point B, start to finish. I don't know how you guys do those. You're probably smarter than I am. I start at the end and work back. I, even then, I don't get it right most of the time. But that's my little trick to accomplish that. And sometimes it's a helpful tool to understanding a passage of Scripture. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start at the beginning, end and work our way back to the beginning. So let's start by beginning at the end. Now Jesus did many other signs 
And the presence of the disciples, John writes, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's emphasize that phrase. You may have life, life in his name. Our first principle to notice today is that life is in Jesus. Life is in Jesus. John writes that life is in his, Jesus' name. Meaning the person of Jesus, the ways and the words and the works of Jesus, what he's done and who he is. Life is in him. Now, for those of you who are a little more philosophical than the rest, what is life in the first place? What is John talking about here? He's waxing philosophical. If life is in Jesus, that's our point right now, what is life? You know, in a world that's heartsick to find that answer, we need to ask the question, what is life? What, we try relationships, right? We try experiences. We try pursuits of all types and sorts. We try success. We try escape. We try distraction, but our point here is that life is in the name of Jesus. What is life? I was watching a documentary about a sports program that was incredibly successful for a period of time, and the coach of that program was having great success. They worked all year. He poured his whole soul into this program every waking moment, stressed out to wazoo, anxious, not sleeping at had a complete disastrous effect on his health, but they made it all the way to the championship game back when playoffs weren't the thing, and so there was less to argue about or more to argue about, depending on your persuasion in college sports, but they made it to the championship game, and they won. And In this documentary, the coach shares that as he walked through the tunnel into the locker room where his team was celebrating that they had accomplished this thing. They had won the championship. He walked through the partying atmosphere into his office and closed the door behind him. And while there was raucous noise of celebration, crossed the door, anxiety took over his heart and his mind. And he started texting with the next class of recruits, trying to get them on board the program because now, well, next season has already started. And he's got to get the next talent and the next thing planned, and, and he became overwhelmed, enslaved by this pursuit. On the outside, it would have looked like he was living life, right? He wasn't. It's maybe a microcosm of most of us. If life is in Jesus, what is it really like to be alive? Well, Jesus had given us that answer. We talked about this back in John chapter 17, verse 3. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus had prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is not essentially having a drive, having a hope, having fulfillment, or even immortality. That's not life, really. Jesus says, life at the core is knowing God holy. Life at its core is knowing God holy, being right and one with him. That's life. 
As John would later write in a letter, 1 John 5, this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever has the Son has life. Life is having Jesus. Life is knowing God. Life is in Jesus. It's what John's communicating to us here. And listen, I know. It's like 9.30 a.m. This might feel a little churchy and abstract right now. But you know what's maybe even harder to understand for us to realize as humans? Having life in Jesus presumes that not being in Jesus means we're dead in the first place. We're dead without Jesus. That's the opposite and equal truth here. He said in 1 John, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Paul writes in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins which you once walked. Life is in Jesus, but without Jesus, we don't have life. We are dead. Have any of you ever had a car that wouldn't start? It was a cold Indiana winter morning. You had somewhere to be and nothing happened. I've been there a lot. I'm very experienced with this. When, when you have a car that won't start, it doesn't matter if it's a nice car. I mean, it could be a Corvette. It could be this really nice lifted truck. Whatever your car is, it's dead if it don't start, right? You're not roaring down the road like you're supposed to be. You're dead. What that car needs is life. It needs a powerful source of life. Connected to it to give it life. Well, it, life, John tells us, is in Jesus. How does Jesus transfer that life to us? How do we go from being dead in our sin to life in Jesus? Let's work backwards in our passage. We had said that you may have life in his name, but John had first said... Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, life is in Jesus, but you can't experience it. You can't be jump-started by this life in Jesus until the moment when you believe Jesus. When you believe Jesus. That's our next principle. Life is in Jesus. Our second principle is that that life is experienced when you believe Jesus. John writes, when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? The Christ. What does that mean? He's the Christ, the Son of God. How are we supposed to believe that if it just feels like a throwaway phrase that we hear very often? Well, let me set this up. So if, when we believe is the principle here, what are we believing? The first point is this. Believe that he's set apart. Believe that he's set apart. That's what it ultimately means here that Jesus is the Christ. See, Christ is a title. Christ is a title. The title Christ means anointed one. In Greek, the word krios means to anoint, to smear something with oil, to, 
to apply oil to someone to set it apart. You anoint someone, and when you are anointed, you are the Christos in Greek. Krios is to anoint, and if you've been anointed, you are the Christos. You are the anointed one. That's a Greek way to say anointed one. That's our English word Christ. Well, in Hebrew, they'd use a different word. They wouldn't say Christos. In Hebrew, they'd say Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one or the Lord's anointed. And throughout the whole Old Testament, you see all these people who are messiahs, little m, messiahs. And in, in the Greek, you'd call those Christos. Christ and Messiah are English versions, transliterations of the term anointed one. We see throughout Scripture then that kings and priests and prophets from the nation of Israel were set apart, were anointed to a special authority and function that God gave to them to perform amongst his people or his mission. John is revealing to us that Jesus is the Christ, capital C, capital M, Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's smeared with symbolic oil because he's been set apart for something. What's he been set apart for? What do we believe Jesus was anointed to do? We believe that he is set apart as the king and the priest and the prophet that we needed. That's the analogy that Jesus fulfills. That's what all these other messiahs, these other anointed ones throughout Israel's history had been pointing to all along. They were a king, but there would be a king. They were a prophet, but there would be a prophet. They were a priest, but there would be a forever priest. Because remember, we're, we're spiritually dead, naturally separated from God, and we need someone to resolve our animosity with him, our hostility to God, to give us life. From the beginning of God's interaction with humanity, God had been dropping hints. God had been dropping predictions of someone who would come, promises of someone who would be that for us. They were going to be an offspring of mankind to crush the head of the serpent. They were going to be an offspring of Abraham to bless the nations. They were going to be a priest like Melchizedek had been a priest to bless and intercede for the nations. They were going to be a son of David to be king forever. This anointed one, he was going to be a prophet that would proclaim God truly and faithfully to his people. All of the nation of Israel was waiting for this person, this anointed of the Lord. All of creation was groaning for this person, whether they knew it or not. And here John proclaims, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the anointed one. He is the Christ. And John adds, he's not just the anointed one. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son He's divine. He's of limitless worth. He's of limitless power. You know, a theological type would say this way, that Jesus is the anointed one par excellence. He, he is the greatest anointed one. He's above and beyond all other anointed ones. He's set apart as king and priest and prophet. King because he was God, son of God. He was the creating divine authority over all. And 
priest because he was the mediator that we needed between us and God. Who made a way once for all, not many continuing sacrifices, one sacrifice. Not of inferior quality, but of infinite quality. Dying in our place for our sins. He mediated for us, a priest. And like a prophet, he revealed God. He revealed God to us. Remember how John opens up his book in chapter 1? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But here's Jesus. The only God who's at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. He has made God known. He has been the prophet that revealed to us who God was. The image of God incarnated so that we could know God. These are the truths, some of the truths, the propositions that we believe about Jesus, leading to life in Jesus. John makes it clear that these are truths that we personally have to reckon with, that we personally have to respond to. To keep working backwards, what he says is, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you, you may believe. Life is in Jesus when we believe Jesus, and you are invited to Jesus. You. I mean, this is a staggering moment in the kind of grammatical narrative of the book of John. This is the only second person plural in the entire book that's directed outside of the narrative of the text of Scripture. He speaks to you, to me, to us. I mean, all throughout this book, John has been describing historical moments and uh, giving us the exchange between characters that were in a time and place, and even records Jesus praying for all those who are going to believe one day. But all of it was kind of contained to a moment in history, to a description of an event. But right here, John breaks that container, breaks that wall. He looks right out and into our eyes and says, you may believe you can. You, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter where you fit or don't fit in life, you may know and believe Jesus. It's like John breaks the fourth wall. You know, I'm talking about the fourth wall between the, in, in movies or in a, in a script, in a stage play, there's this fourth wall. These are the three rooms of the environment of the play, of the stage, of the, the movie or the show we're watching. But then there's the audience. And everybody in the room, if it's a show or from their, you know, their set where they're building this movie, they know there's going to be people watching this, peering through a screen, peering across the front edge of that stage. There's a fourth wall there. We all know that we're all here. But the actors, they interact with each other. They are acting towards us but they're not interacting with us. There's a pretend invisible fourth wall there. Well, here, on purpose, John pierces through that fourth wall. He looks through, and he says to us, you may believe. Across time and space, today, in 2023, you may 
believe. Believe, yield allegiance to, trust completely, acknowledge his claims, profess him to be who he is. Believe, not just agree cognitively, but like embrace wholly. Believe, not just know, but love. Repent and believe that he died in your place for your sin, that he's the only one who can satisfy your heart, that he's the only one who can satisfy your debt before God. Trust him, love him, acknowledge him, confess him wholly. Do you? Do you believe? You can start as God gives you grace. You can come back to continuing to trust that belief you had instead of all the other things you picked up along the way. If you have any doubts, I mean, John was prepared for that. John was prepared for doubts. He wanted to fuel our faith. So let's keep working backwards through our text. He says, but Jesus did many other signs to the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book, but... These are written, let's look at that phrase, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that John was building a case. He wanted to make sure we knew there was sufficient evidence of Jesus. We have sufficient evidence of Jesus. That's this point, principle. We have sufficient evidence of Jesus. Because while it's true that belief in Jesus comes by faith, it is not a blind or ignorant faith. It is not a long shot Hail Mary. Belief in Jesus as Savior is a logical confidence over overwhelming evidence. In and with overwhelming evidence. It's a reasonable faith. I mean, sometimes you might be talking to someone who's not quite ready to believe Jesus yet. There's, there's something they'd prefer to see him do first. There's a little more they're wanting to read into. They saw this show that really kind of made them question some things. They're waiting for just the right moment. John says, hey, these have been written so that you may believe. You have enough Jesus here by the power of God when he awakens you to believe. If I was going to write enough about Jesus for faith, probably, admittedly, I'd write the story a little differently. I'd want to include Jesus' height and weight and eye color. I need that information. It's on the back of every baseball card I have, right? Like, need that. Um, hmm. I'd include his 40-yard dash time. I'd be interested what his ERA and whip was, Little Nazareth League. I'd be curious what his favorite carpentry project was, like what was the thing that you did best? Like what was your specialty, Jesus? I, I want to know more to the story too. Like, okay, John wrote about Nicodemus, but like whatever happened to my brother? Like did Nicodemus believe? He just kind of like went MIA after that. He didn't finish the story, John. I want to know if Jesus, you know, if a girl ever caught his eye. Like was there ever a spark somewhere there? But John wasn't writing to fill our curiosity. The Holy Spirit led John to write what could lead us to faith in Jesus as Christ and the Son of God. And John says, this is enough. These have been written so that you may believe. 
And for all of its deep theology, the book of John, the gospel of John, is essentially a vast series of testimonies to who Jesus is so that we can believe him. I mean, let's use this illustration. It's almost like the book of John is a trial. It's a courtroom where the attorney, John, parades a string of witnesses before the judge. He wants to drive home a point. Your honor, Jesus can be believed. So I'd like to call a few witnesses first. Let let me call in chapter 1, John the Baptist. And the baptizer, right, he comes up to the stand and he says, Behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I have seen and testify this is the Son of God. And, And next we bring in Andrew. And Andrew says, I told my brother Peter first thing. We have found the Messiah. And the next John brings in Philip, and Philip says, when I saw Jesus, the first thing I said to my buddy Nathaniel was, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. We have found the one the prophets also wrote. And Nathaniel comes in, and Nathaniel admits, at first, listen, your honor, I was skeptical, but Jesus showed off supernatural knowledge, and then I declared passionately, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And that's just chapter 1. And John keeps building this case. Then there's this woman of Samaria who went running into her city saying, let me show you a man who knows everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then all the citizens of the city, your honor, I couldn't bring them all in. But when they heard her testimony, they went out and then they said to her, we no longer believe just because you said. I mean, that's hearsay. That's not admissible in this court. But they said, we have heard from ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. And next, in chapter 4, John brings a nobleman and all of his household, and he says, my son was dying, but Jesus healed him with a word. He didn't even come to our house. Our whole household believed. And then Peter himself steps up to the stand. We believe and know he is the Holy One of God. In chapter 6, your honor, John then says, I could call crowds of people who put their faith in him, Chapter 7, some said, surely this is the prophet. Some said, surely this is the Christ. And and then John brings in a man born blind. And he says, Jesus gave you the ability to see again. Tell us, man, what's your response to this, Jesus? And the man says, I fell at his feet. I worshipped him as Lord. Your Honor, John might say, I've turned over evidence of several other miraculous things he did. Jesus turned water into wine. He was feeding over 5,000 people out of a small lunch. He walked on the sea. But now my star witness is here. Lazarus, take the stand. Lazarus doesn't have to say anything because Lazarus died. But look at him. He's alive. And then the gathering full of people in the room start calling out, We were there. We saw it. We put our faith in him. Chapter 11, 45. And the judge starts calling for order. He's banging his gavel. The room has been lost. But having established this evidence, John changes pace in chapter 13. He zooms in on Jesus. And he presents this manuscript and this confirmed sequence of events for the 24 hours leading to Jesus' death. How Jesus was a humble servant in this upper room and taught and said many things about who he was, the divine son, who was the way, the truth, and the life. And then the way he was led out into a garden and prayed to God and then was tortured and then was killed. And at that part, the judge starts to throw out the case. He says, why am I supposed to be hearing a case about the credibility of a dead man? And John says, your honor. 
Jesus came back to life, and he runs out Peter, and he runs out Mary, and he runs out the disciples, and then he brings out Thomas. Oh, Thomas is like, your honor, listen, I get it. I doubt it too. But then I told him, you are my Lord and my God. That's John 1 to 20. And here we are at the end of 20. And Jesus says, these have been written so that you may believe. This book is all about him. It's a testimony to who Jesus is. The one God sent to be the anointed one. The savior of the world. These are written that you may believe. That brings us to the very beginning of our passage. Now, Jesus did many other signs of the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are, Jesus did many other signs, which were not written in this book. You know, John only shares seven of the, of the 35 plus miraculous events that we see confirmed throughout the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John didn't try to cover every moment. He didn't try to cover every conversation. That wasn't his goal. And it's interesting. You know, John shows remarkable humility in what he chose to omit from his account. He, he said, I only... Jesus did many other things. Uh, they're not included in my book. And, and what John chose to omit really characterizes John's heart. He showed so much humility in what he didn't put in the story. Like, I know John included that he won the race with Peter. Like, that happened, right? We'll give him one thing. But John wanted this book to be all about Jesus, not him. And so instead of calling attention to himself wherever he showed up, he referred to himself not as John, but as the disciple who... Jesus loved. He centered Jesus. Wherever he was present, Jesus was the one centered. Instead of revealing the times that Jesus had selected him to be a private participant and observing a miracle, of observing a transfiguration, of being there while Jesus was uh, praying in the garden, being extra close to Jesus there, John doesn't tell us a bit about those VIP experiences. He might describe some of the event, but he doesn't tell us he got to be on the inside. Spurgeon says it like this. John leaves out that which would have brought himself into the front in order that he may fill up the whole foreground of his canvas with the portrait of his Lord. Everything is subordinate to the one grand end that you should believe that Jesus is the Christ. John wanted this book to be all about Jesus. Who did many other signs, John is saying. And he would go on to add in chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John's saying, guys, you only know the beginning of who Jesus is. You only know the beginning of my Jesus. It's like, you think this house is great? Man, this is, this is the foyer. Wait till you see the rest of the house. You think this book is great? Man, this is the first page. You can't believe what you're going to read in the pages to come. As the hymn writer would say, could we 
with ink the ocean feel, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What am I getting at? What, what is John getting at here? He's saying we've only just begun to comprehend Jesus. We've only just begun to comprehend Jesus. You're not sure about Jesus? You have no idea what you're passing on yet. You think you like what you've seen? You haven't seen the half of it. You think he's good now? Just wait till you believe him. You think knowing him is good? Just wait till you're experiencing him. You think life in him is good? Just wait till you're with him for eternity. You think eternal life is good? Just wait till you experience God. Further up, further in, he just keeps getting better and better. You know, I'd like to ask the band to come out. And you know what, I'm, I'm going to bring something out too, because John's book reminds me of something. We were given a telescope a little bit ago, and it's pretty great. I mean, admittedly, it's not the most powerful telescope. The, the controls and knobs, they're a little finicky. They're not as precise as I'd like it to be. It's a little uh, lacking in some stability. It can be tricky and frustrating to get focused in on the right thing, but... Have you seen the universe? It's incredible, isn't it? Most of the time, though, we don't even notice the stars or the moon. Right? Like we're inside, on, looking down on our phones. We, we're not even aware. There's so much distance between us and them. It's almost like, it's almost like we're dead. Right? But then you look into the telescope and you, you find the right thing you're supposed to be focused on. And, and it's incredible. And the thing is, this doesn't make something bigger than it is, does it? No, no, it just makes it more and more clear that that thing is more enormous than you knew. You, you don't even think about it most of the time, but it's incredible. It's radiant. It's detailed. This is amazing. John invites us to notice that his account Jesus points our eyes to Jesus. It aligns us to where we should be focused in the first place. That thing we're dead of, this is now evidence, a direction, a guide to point to Jesus. It gives us a chance to dial in and lock in on him. He was really here. He really is the anointed one. We really can't believe him. Look to him. Look to him. It's all about him. Now, we may feel distant and far away and removed from him at times. And maybe that's because you're dead. But you can be alive. And alive, you can be focused on him. But so often, you know, it's finicky. We, we so often, I think, more than targeting Jesus and looking to Jesus, we, we bump the, the worldview. And, and the next thing we know, it's us, but we want, we hope for what we desire, how we can understand this thing, our happiness, 
And when that's our worldview, when that's the way we've oriented our lives, well, you can look down through the telescope. Well, let me tell you what I'm seeing here. It's a distorted, misamplified picture of me. And it doesn't bring fulfillment. And it doesn't fulfill me. It doesn't satisfy the fact that I'm dead. It cannot bring me life. Not the life God intended. But by the grace of God, John's saying, look, here's what you need to see. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. The author and finisher of your faith. It's all about him. By God's grace, you can see him instead. That is life. It's all about him. We are seeing the whole thing now. We don't even begin to comprehend who he is. We're only seeing flickers and images, partial pictures of who he is so far. He's more than we realized. He's staggering in his brilliance. He's magnificent in his radiance. He's terrifying in his power. It's joy and it's love and it's life all mingled together in one. We're dumbfounded as we see him that we ever took him for granted. Life is in Jesus. Jesus is who we believe. Jesus was set apart to be our Savior. The one we needed. He made the way. And all of John's writing, everything he's doing is just so that we can see him. We can trust him. We can receive him and love him and live in and for him. Because after all, it's all about him. Church, will you stand? Colossians 1 tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Philippians continues to thought, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's praise the name of the Lord our God today.